says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for you reap whatever you sow. If you sow to your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. There are some weeks when I try to preach on something like this from St. Paul, that I take refuge in a beautiful text of gospel consolation from the book of Second Peter, which says that there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. This, I think, is one of those weeks, for me at least. But I think that Second Peter is trying to say something more about Paul's letters than the simple desire to throw up our hands sometimes and tell Paul that we have no idea what he's trying to say. I think that the difficulty of trying to understand Paul sometimes isn't just the difficulty we have when someone's being sort of muddled and not expressing themselves well. No, with Paul, I think we're encountering someone who's talking about things of God that no eyes have seen and no ear has heard, the radically new thing that God has done for us and for our salvation in the resurrection of Christ. And it's simply not easy to get across to us in words that connect with how we usually understand the world. Paul went from persecuting Christians to traveling the known world to preach the gospel of Christ. His life was literally turned upside down by his encounter with the risen Lord. When we read Paul, we should never forget that there's depth and fire behind his words. When we don't understand him, it's all very likely because he's trying to get something across to us that's almost more than words can describe. I encourage you then, when Paul sounds hard to understand, not to give up. It's precisely those times when we encounter something in Scripture that makes our heads spin that we have an opportunity to grow I also encourage you not to too quickly ever latch on to a reading of Paul or anything else in the Bible for that matter that fits too neatly into our normal categories. That's too easy to understand. When we do this, it's a sure sign that we've made God fit into our preconceptions and prejudices instead of allowing God to turn us upside down like he did Paul and set our lives on an entirely new course. With all that in mind, then, what is difficult this week in Paul to understand? Well, I want to focus on just two things. The first is the contrast, the famous contrast, that he makes between the spirit and the flesh. And the second is what you might call the principle of sowing and reaping. Like Paul puts it, that you reap whatever you sow. Let's start with the first, the spirit and the flesh. What is Paul trying to say to us here? Unfortunately, I think the terms themselves sort of get in the way of understanding what he means. When we hear Paul condemning the flesh, we may well get an image in our minds of some dour scold of yesteryear who fits H.L. Mencken's famous definition of Puritanism, namely, the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. We might think that Paul means to condemn anything to do with the body that's any fun whatsoever, even though the real historical Puritans weren't like that. 
and the real Christians are supposed to be so spiritual that we don't even notice that we have bodies at all. That's what a lot of people, I think, think Christianity is, but it's not what Paul was trying to say. The NIV version of the Bible translates the Greek word sarx as sinful nature instead of flesh. It's helpful. It helps us avoid this kind of misunderstanding. If what we mean by flesh is the human body, well, flesh isn't bad. The Word, after all, became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was scorned by the supposedly religious people for eating and drinking with sinners, and his first miracle was turning water into wine at a wedding party. That is, a celebration of, as Genesis puts it, a woman leaving her father and mother and cleaving to her husband, and the two becoming one flesh. God likes flesh. He made it. So that can't be it. No, when Paul talks about the flesh, what he means is something more like the whole sinful order of things that's passing away. Last Sunday, you may recall, we read his list of what he calls the works of the flesh, some of which we think of as fleshy, like sexual sin and habitual drunkenness, but some of which have more to do with the breakdown of relationships. He lists things like strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, factions, and envy. Now, it may be true that there's less sexual sin and habitual drunkenness, on average, among the church-going population in Texas than for non-churchgoers, but I'm afraid that we supposedly spiritual churchgoers might give the rest of Texas a run for our money when it comes for strife, quarrels, and factions. Putting away the works of the flesh, then, can't mean trying to move beyond having bodies. That's not what the Bible means. Rather, it means putting away the whole way of life that tries to live, you might say, as mere flesh. Flesh alone. Nothing more than material bodies in a material world apart from God. The great Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky is, I think, unsurpassed in painting a picture of what life would be like if God did not exist, or if everyone acted as if God didn't exist. John Lennon famously imagined that if there were no heaven, what we'd get is a world full of peace, love, and yellow submarines. But Dostoevsky thought that what we'd get instead is the desperation and rage of the unquiet human heart with no hope and no home. We'd get a world, if there were no God, in which there's no hope for the poor and the, the oppressed and the suffering, where life for most is nasty, brutish, and short, except for the lucky and probably ruthless few with enough money and power to float above it all. <coughs> We'd get a world, if there were no God, in which there's really no right or wrong except what we make up for ourselves and certainly no almighty judge to hold anyone accountable. We get a world where we might as well say, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, and where we might as well give in to the dishonesty, selfish, strife, quarrel, anger, quarp quarrels, anger and factions all around us, because that's just the way the world is, and the only way to win in life is to play the game. That's the world Paul is describing, the world of the flesh, 
without God, flesh without spirit. Paul says to us, don't be fooled into thinking that that's just the way the world is. It may feel that way sometimes. We might look around and see nothing but strife, factions, quarrels. A world of might makes right, where the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. We might look at our families and see the wounds caused by addiction and unfaithfulness. We might get tired of it all, tired in our bones, and feel like giving up because after all, that's just the way the world is. But Paul says, no. That's the old way of life that's passing away. We don't have to live that way anymore. That's not the way God intended the world to be. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can follow Jesus to a better way of living. One full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We can't do that on our own, but we can do it in the power of God, together as the body of Christ in the fellowship of the church. Lord knows that we're not perfect here at St. Augustine's, you and I, but I do see this happening. I see people all the time coming together to lift up members here who are going through hard times. I see new members and old pitching in to serve and help out in all kinds of ways. I see people who are profoundly generous financial givers. I see people serving at our monthly neighborhood lunches. I see people making newcomers feel welcome and at home. Yes, even at the 8 o'clock service when they come. I see people who I know are on opposite sides of the political spectrum trying hard to listen to one another respectfully and to find common ground. When we sow to the Spirit, these are the kinds of things that we'll start to see. They may look small and insignificant compared with the forces of wickedness arrayed against us on all sides. But Paul says that these things are the kinds of things that will last for eternity. When you sow to the Spirit, no matter how small or hopeless it may seem at the time, we're planting seeds that will grow, and last forever. That brings me to the second thing that I said was hard to understand in Paul today, and that's the principle of sowing and reaping, and the difference between sowing to the flesh and sowing to the spirit. On the surface, it sounds simple. Bad habits build bad character, and good habits build good character. Hopefully, this is what we were all taught growing up. If you give in to a culture of, let's say, mean-spiritedness or quarreling that's around you at work, or a culture of drunkenness or sexual sin that's around you at school, well, you'll find yourself putting out the life of the Spirit that's in your heart and becoming set in habits that will eventually lead to a bad end. By contrast, if you build up good Christ-like habits, like daily prayer, weekly worship, service, generous giving, treating people with peace, patience, kindness, and gentleness, you'll eventually become set in habits that make that way of life who you are. One way or another, Paul says, over time, you will reap what you sow. That's 
actually not hard to understand so far as it goes. We become what we repeatedly do, whatever that is. Studies show, for instance, that people who give generously for church actually tend to give more to non-church causes than people who don't give to church. Giving to church doesn't tend to crowd out or replace non-church giving. Instead, it encourages more of it, precisely because when we give generously, it starts to make us generous givers in every aspect of our lives. The same is true according to the principle of sowing and reaping in everything else. Do you have a hard time saying daily prayers? Well, start doing it anyway, and eventually you'll have a hard time not saying daily prayers because you'll miss it. This all is good advice, and it makes good sense. The trouble is that put this way, it can sound just like what Paul has actually spent the whole letter to the Galatians railing against. That is, the notion that we can save ourselves by observing the law, by just doing good things. That's a topic for another sermon. But in short, Paul says that we absolutely cannot save ourselves by doing good things, no matter how hard we try. Our salvation is in Christ alone, so that Paul can say, May I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. A few Sundays ago, we started the season of ordinary time, of Christian growth, with the story of Jesus casting out demons from a possessed man, from someone who was powerless to do anything to save himself. So when Paul talks this morning about the fruit of the Spirit, I think he's not just talking about how good habits build good character. Instead, I think he's talking about what the power of God's Holy Spirit can do in our lives, to turn us upside down and inside out, and set us free from the grip of the power of sin and the forces of evil. When we sow to the Spirit, it's like we're reaching out our hand and asking Jesus to deliver us from evil and make us new, born again, set free. When we pray, we're not just working on ourselves to become more meditative or spiritual or mindful. Instead, we're asking for the sovereign power of God to reach into our lives and renew our hearts, and to reach into the world around us and to make it more like God's kingdom. When we worship, we're not just coming to hear about how to be a better person. We're joining in the one sacrifice of Christ for sin in Christ, by which we're made sons and daughters of God our Father, making our dwelling place to be in Christ. He in us. For those of us and for our loved ones who feel far from God and in the grips of some sin or affliction that we can't shake free of, that is good and hopeful news. As Paul says, new creation is everything. Keep on sowing to the Spirit then by lifting out your hands to Jesus. He is powerful to save. That's what God did for Paul when he was breathing threats and murder against the Christians on the road to Damascus. The risen Christ knocked him off his feet, off the path that leads to destruction, and onto the path 
that leads to eternal life. May God do the same for all of us, for those whom we love, and for those he has not yet brought through our doors, but one day will.